This is writer and game designer Robin D. Laws. And this is game designer and writer Kenneth Height. And this is our podcast, Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff. Bandwidth brought to you by Pelgrane Press. Stuff we're here to talk about in this episode include... Same foe, different games. The China Subhat. Protagonists. And Vitold Pilecki. Everyone remembers their first trip to the island of Alamarha. You mean that strange, conspiracy-ridden island off the coast of North Africa, known for its lax regulations and mysteriously authoritarian government? Uh, I thought it was in the Mediterranean. Didn't everyone? Atlas Games, the publisher of Feng Shui and Unknown Armies, is at it again with a brand new Kickstarter. This time it's a new edition of Over the Edge, the legendary role-playing game of weird urban danger. Jonathan Tweet is back at the keys, inviting us to join him in creating unique unorthodox characters ready to get into all kinds of trouble. It's the same Alamarha you always knew, only this time it's completely different. If rampant New Age occultism, gangs of baboons, twisted assassins, and mad scientists in a modern-day setting of weirdness and menace tickle your fancy, this is the Kickstarter for you. Over the Edge is now kickstarting, and you can make your pledge at atlas-games.com slash kickstartote. Offer open to humans and tulpas. Tulpas before pledging, ensure your credit card is valid and not part of the illusion. The rattle of dice, the thump of miniatures, the crunch of Doritos, and the benevolent gaze of Peter Frampton coming alive welcome us once more into the shag-carpeted confines of the gaming hut. But, hey, look at that. This monster miniature has different paint colors depending on where you hold it. Is it in the sun-dappled window over the air conditioner? Then it's a gold, beautiful monster. Is it underneath the GM screen, right beside Peter Frampton? Then it takes on his scarlet and dim countenance. Because we're changing monsters around, as we so often do, both as GMs and as game designers. So, Robin, let's talk about how one monster may fulfill different Narrative purposes. Right. So any uh, two games that have somewhat different core activities in which the player characters are expected to do different stuff, uh, when they meet creatures, will meet them in the context of that core activity. And so a creature that you devise for... Uh, for the setting uh, that you're planning for the players to go through, probably naturally will have knobs and, and whistles on them that make them work in the sort of narration that you're expecting in that story. But there's also the uh, fact that you can transmit a monster from one setting to another. And a couple of episodes, we talked about the process of doing that. Uh, and I thought uh, one of the examples would be really great to expand on uh, once you have converted a creature, now what do you do with them? What do you do with them in the original? What do you do with them in the final? And one of the really cool creatures that I came across while converting Ninth Black Agent's foes into Yellow King foes in order so that they can take advantage of the uh, rather different quick shock combat system is uh, Red Jack. And so I thought this was a really great example of how you're not just going to fight a creature uh, with a different set of combat rules, but everything about how you encounter them and how they fit into the storyline is going to be different uh, depending on whether you meet them in Knights Black Agents, where the core activity is uh, you are running toward vampires with guns before they run toward you with their fangs, uh, versus... Uh, the Yellow King role-playing game where you were investigating the slow breakdown of reality by the infusion of Carcosa into our world. Uh, so, Ken, Red Jack is a really nifty uh, approach to a couple of classic tropes. It's already a bunch of things meeting together and yep. fusing before they even wind up uh, being converted to, to Yellow King. And so, uh, why don't you uh, tell us about the original Red Jack as he appears in Knights Black Agents. The original Red Jack appears in um, 1888 in London because it's the nickname for Jack the Ripper. And I put Jack the Ripper into Dracula dossier because uh, Bram Stoker put the Ripper into Dracula when he, in the Icelandic preface to the Icelandic edition, or actually the English preface to the Icelandic edition, uh, gave basically gave Jack the Ripper as an example of the kind of atrocity that can be carried out by horrible beings without uh, being detected by... Uh, uh, the good guys, the forces of order, uh, broadly put. 
And that mention of Jack the Ripper caused everyone to seize on it, as every mention of Jack the Ripper since 1888 has caused. And uh, so Jack the Ripper had already been sort of drawn into the Dracula mythos and, and was now definitely drawn in. So we had to address him in the Dracula dossier. And rather than just have it be Dr. Seward wandering around with a scalpel, although we, of course, give that as an option because uh, Dracula dossier, we decided, or I decided, to pay homage to the other great day tourning of Jack the Ripper, namely his appearance in Star Trek. So I made him a body-jumping vampiric tulpa or spirit or alien or something, basically a, a demon or a vampiric energy that possesses people through the medium of his killing knife. And uh, that uh, I borrowed right from Robert Block from his uh, script for Wolf in the Fold, Star Trek episode. Block somewhat borrowed it himself from uh, yours truly, Jack the Ripper, his own short story. But in that one, the guy's just immortal. He doesn't um, uh, body jump. So the um uh, the fun of the fun of uh, body jumping Jack the Ripper hats off to Robert Block and that's why I put it into Dracula dossier. Right. So this is a trope jumping from history mm-hmm. into Stoker, then into uh, space opera and now mm-hmm. back into Stoker and Dracula and before it will then uh, leap once more uh, like a body jumping uh, spirit ought to uh, from uh, game to game. And the, the thing about Red Jack in the Dracula dossier is that he is a, a vampire. He is a vampire spirit, but he, he lives in the knife mm-hmm. uh, that, uh, that Jack uses. And so that enables, uh, you know, the classic slasher trope of you think you've killed Michael Myers or you think you've killed uh, uh, Jason, but guess what? He's, uh, he's back, uh, coming right at you, but of course he's much cooler than, uh, Jason or, or Myers because he has a historical provenance. Now, in the sort of Jason Bourne meets vampires core activity of Knight's Black Agents, how would you expect to use him actually in the game? How would you fit him into a scenario? Well, the, um, the, the suggested options, uh, include making him, you know, something that Edom, uh, summoned up when they were trying to contact Dracula in the first place or make him a servant of Dracula. But the encounter, right. and, basically. And Edom, uh, for those who don't know, uh, Knight's Black Agents is the, uh, sub-agency of British intelligence that thinks it's a great idea to bring vampires on board as assets. Right. So Red Jack may be playing either side, but, the sort of way you stumble on him is basically there's an awful lot of people getting murdered suddenly, uh, probably because it's Red Jack, an awful lot of women getting murdered suddenly. And the player characters notice this pattern, wonder, is it connected to Dracula and chase it? And when they chase it, they find out through um, so much like the old, uh, I think it was Denzel Washington movie uh, Fallen, where he's chasing the body jumping demon around using police work to try and do it. They would do the same sort of thing, only faster and in bluer light and uh, with better guns. Uh, right. And so uh, once you uh, take him and uh, port him over into the Yellow King role-playing game, his origin story is somewhat different in that uh, the uh, the knife with spirit in him in uh, Knight's Black Agents, uh, that's uh, that's because of Satan, the big S. He's, a, he's right. an actual real factor in the uh, background world of... Uh, uh, Knights Black Agents. And, uh, guess what? We have a more alien, but, uh, cognate figure in the King in Yellow. So, uh, the King in Yellow or, uh, one of his uh, daughters or some other Carcosan noble can be responsible for, uh, getting the original spirit of uh, Jack the Ripper in- into the knife. And I guess you have two choices there as to whether, uh, it started out as a Carcosan killing spirit and, uh, uh, you know, Jack the Ripper, uh, was the first of uh, a number of hosts to wield him, or uh, you can figure that the uh, King in Yellow or whoever it was uh, took the spirit of the real uh, Jack the Ripper and permanently installed it in the knife. Another thing about Yellow King, though, of course, is that there are four different sequences that recur over time, so you could make Red Jack appear in different incarnations over time as different hosts that are uh, possessed through the knife. So in 1895 Paris, they could just actually meet regular old uh, Jack the Ripper. Real Jack the Ripper, yeah, he could still be alive. Yep. He could still be alive, and uh, you could run into him there, and you, you think you finished if him If he was off. Walter Sickert, he could even be an artist, just like them. Yes, exactly. And you can either pick your favorite historical artist who's been uh, accused of being the Ripper, or you can make up a fictional version, and they can think in the Paris version that they've uh, run him to ground. And so uh, there... It, uh, it may well be that he is, uh, 
he has read the book. He has read the, the King in Yellow play, and uh, that has uh, uh, either started his uh, killing spree or uh, driven him to, once he hits Paris, to uh, target people who are a threat to Carcosa. And uh, the uh, the art students in 1895, uh, they deal with them and they finish them off. And of course, or you can do the old um, uh, because there is a a a sub tradition of Jack the Ripper stories where Jack the Ripper is hunting a monster that is uh, body jumping, Uh, and that is uh, fairly distasteful, certainly. But you could imply that he's been driven mad by the same forces that are animating the player characters because he's trying to find Casilda and Camilla and kill them before they can anchor themselves in our world. And he's just bad at it because he's a crazy person. And uh, that is sort of, he could exist as a foil to the characters saying, if you go too far hunting Carcosa, take care. You may become as Carcosa, very Nietzsche and Nietzsche's alive then too. He could show up. And so, uh, next time when, uh, you play in the, the next sequence, which is Aftermath, the, uh, 1947 Continental War in the heart of Europe, uh, you could be on the battlefield and, uh, guess what? You look over and one of your fellow soldiers is holding the knife. Your characters don't remember, uh, the way your players do what that knife means. But then again, uh, there's, uh, another killing spree and this time you, oh, wait a minute. Something, something about the knife is, uh, behind this. And so you, uh, uh, then, uh, drill through the next layer of the mystery and you realize that, uh, not only is Jack the Riffer, Ripper, uh, Jack the Riffer is actually, he's, he's just a podcaster. He's sort of like, yeah. And, 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 he, and frankly, he kills. Yes, exactly. He's only got seven episodes, but they're all good. Yes, exactly. And so you can, uh, find out, uh, oh, wait, it's the knife that possesses you. That's part of the thing. And then, uh, and then again in Aftermath or in This Is Normal Now or both, you could have, uh, you know, the knife, uh, possessing another host, uh, because, Aftermath and This Is Normal Now are alternate reality versions of each other. You can have the same host behaving in a different way uh, with the knife. And, of course, uh, in both games, there's, as soon as you posit that there is a knife that has an evil murdering spirit in it, that creates at least the possibility that one of the players could pick up the knife, perhaps not knowing what's going on, right? You finish <laughs> off Jack the Ripper, you pick up the knife, and then there's the chance that you uh, turn into the creature. So in... Yellow King, there's a couple of shock cards that uh, you can get one shock card that just sort of represents the possibility that uh, Jack's spirit is trying to take you over, but uh, ultimately decides that you are, uh, you know, unsuitable. And so uh, the card is discarded when the knife finds a new host. Uh, but there's a worse one where, uh, you know, Jack decides you would be a pretty good uh, host. And so uh, that's a continuity card that uh, carries over from episode to episode and if you end any scenario with less than three composure points you leave play and become uh the the next host and the uh rest of the players uh, have to and your new character of course have to track you down and, and finish you off because you know what's the fun of uh a possessing spirit in a knife if it doesn't have at least the the potential to uh, possess and take out one of the uh, player characters that way. Exactly. And is that something you uh, would play with in Knights Black Agents as well, having one of the agents possibly? Oh uh, yes, absolutely. I mean, that's host? that's one of the one of the sort of um, ways to play I mean, in in mirror mode. Absolutely, you would do it. You'd almost, you know, you'd probably want to lower the chances that they get possessed by touching the knife to to so simple a child could do it. Um, and then the no, the notion of, are you possessed or are you not possessed? Even the player character might not know because of course, uh, uh, induced amnesia and fugue states and all the rest of that stuff are, uh, very much in genre for Knights Black Agents play. So y- y- that could be yet another possible, um, uh, way that the vampires get you is that, you know, when you're holding the knife or when you're possessed by Red Jack, you're a loyal servant of the vampire conspiracy. And when you're not holding it or you're not possessed, uh, it's not a full moon, whatever the uh, excuses are. It's not between August and September. You've got your full agency back. And so you're your own double agent. You're your own mole. That's very much in, uh, in style for uh, any sort of Knights Black Agents play, Dracula dossier or no. Right. And uh, Dracula dossier posits that you're hopping through time that the you know it's a multi-generational game and so uh what you could do there is that you know in the uh, stoker era you straight up encounter red jack who's doing all the things that we've talked about before but then 
uh, later on, uh, perhaps in the Cold War, you could have a little dust mode thing where, oh, you're, uh, you know, you're all Edom agents and you're sort of the, the sort of the Lucari style kind of desk jockeys and, uh, the safe that has the knife in it, it's been opened and you know that, oh, it has to be one of the six people, uh, who, you know, so you can basically do Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy, but who's got the Jack the Ripper knife and mm-hmm. what are they going to do with them? And, uh, you skipped over the World War II era, which is mostly spent in Romania, but you could certainly have a, um, a situation where maybe you wanted to have the original 1894 characters coming back together or their home front type, the people who couldn't get into SOE, but you want to say, no, we had a daughter so that you can maintain continuity of the bloodline uh, for your own uh, campaign purposes. That could be the the cross cut that you, when you're in Romania and you've, you have to go research whatever happens next in Romanian history, you smash cut back to wartime London in 1940 with Jack the Ripper, a new Jack the Ripper, new Red Jack, stalking the city under the cover of the Blitz darkness. And so the characters have to break curfew and sneak around and um, uh, try and hunt down Red Jack on the streets of London. And it can be its own little pocket um, uh, side drama that, while not having the same weight as the Dracula half, still keeps everyone excited and invested um, uh, in, in that part of the story. And uh, that puts me in mind of a, another classic trope is that the, you know, the knife makes a deal with you so that either in World War II and Dracula dossier or in aftermath or sorry, in uh, the wars in uh, the 1947 Continental War, the knife can whisper to you and say, you know, that impregnable fortress there where you're supposed to do the commando raid. It's like, I can promise you that I can I can cut through the defenses like butter, and I'm just really hankering to get the uh, enemy that's inside that fortress. And if, you know, I just need someone to hold me for a little while, and you know that, oh, it's, and so that also gives you the classic of, uh, well, it's war times, desperate measures. Are we going to, you know, obviously I'm pretty sure uh, Red Jack isn't going to let go of me once uh, once I've done this, but maybe it's a sacrifice I'll have to make. And so the... Uh, the classic, uh, you know, do you pick up the super powerful uh, uh, weapon uh, trope comes into play. And uh, there is no weapon, however, that uh, we can use to uh, cut through uh, this ne- next segment, except for a beautiful and attractive and exciting commercial. So uh, we will uh, use a commercial to get to our next segment. In the 1960s, the CIA hunted Yeti in Tibet, built aircraft that touched the edge of space, and experimented on mind control. But there's more to that story. In the 1960s, the FBI infiltrated occult movements, wiretapped congressmen, and winked at the mafia. Yeah, but there's more to that story. In the 1960s, the Marines invaded Cambodia, the Navy listened to the Pacific Deeps, and the Air Force covered up UFOs. Oh boy, is there more to that story. Those stories all touch the surface of the secret world, the poisonous, unnatural world of the Cthulhu mythos. A government program named Majestic tries to weaponize the unnatural. A government program named Delta Green tries to destroy the unnatural. In the fall of Delta Green, you play the agents of Delta Green, caught between your oath to America and your duty to humanity, caught between a world on fire and the icy cold of other dimensions. Written by Kenneth Hyde, The Fall of Delta Green adapts Arc Dream Publishing's Delta Green the role-playing game to the award-winning Gumshoe Engine. The Fall of Delta Green is a standalone game of standing alone against inevitable destruction. Delta Green falls in 1970. The world falls shortly thereafter. The Fall of Delta Green, available for pre-order now in the Pelgrane Press store. It's Delta Green. It's the 1960s. In Gumshoe, what are you waiting for? The end of the world? The retinal scan and the background check you had to undergo in order to listen to this segment alert you to the fact that we are once more in the top-secret confines of the Tradecraft Hut. This time around, we're going to talk about a uh, recent case of espionage in the news, and I think this is perhaps the most classic espionage story to come along in a long time, Ken. This yeah, is about- e. Phillips Oppenheim would recognize this story, right? I yes. mean, this is oldest of old school. This is like... The first spy stories ever, pretty much, 
uh, in fact, this is not a little bit like um, uh, Riddle of the Sands, right? I mean, because it's about naval warfare and an unprepared nation that doesn't take security seriously. Yeah, Erskine <laughs> Childers and E. Phillips Oppenheim would are right now clinking brandies in uh, <laughs> Edwardian heaven, which may or may not be actual heaven, uh, over, over this story. Yes, and and like uh, Edwardian clubs, also hard to get into. Very hard to get into. So, yes, this is uh, one country stealing weapons schematics from another country. And, yes, the uh, Bruce Partington plans, for God's sakes. Yeah. <laughs> Alas, for uh, for many of our listeners, of course, it's the United States that is having the plans stolen, and the stealers are Chinese hackers, and, and in this case, it's a, it's a civilian espionage agency that seems to have uh, done this. So this happened uh, sometime in January or February, and... 614 gigabytes of material related to a weapons program, which thankfully, again, because we want this to be a great spy story as well as a great news story, even has the Ludlamesque title of Sea Dragon. So sea Dragon. The novel's called Sea Dragon. That could be the name of a Bond film. So uh, and they got signals and sensor data. They got submarine radio room information. So they got crypt- cryptography uh, and... They uh, got access to the uh, Navy submarine uh, unit's electronic warfare library, and they got uh, what seems like the plans to a supersonic anti-ship missile. Uh, so they got a lot of stuff, and uh, the way that they got this from from a contractor, and it was this material was on an unclassified network at the contractors. So. The whole story isn't being told, but before we get to sort of the meta meaning of all of this, are there other details that, that jumped out at you? Um, well, I mean, first of all, there's the, the, the just the complete owning of, I mean, it, it, it's like you say, it's such a classic, you know, it, taken with its national security uh, consequences to one side. It's just such a perfect example of, of, of a take it. I mean, the detail I guess is that, you know, th- this is not the first or the last time the Chinese hackers have basically made the federal government look like a bunch of goofs, um, over and over and over. Uh, they, you know, they, they hacked OPM obviously. Yes. So they have, they've got the F 35 joint strike fighter. They have all the personnel data of everyone probably worked on this missile too. Yeah. It's just, you know, um, what, what do you say? Right. I, this, this is like, you know, being a, a Cleveland Browns fan when, you know, the, the, the Packers show up, it's like, well, we're going to get beaten. That's just the only question is how hard. Yes. So past <laughs> successful operations, they got the, uh, the design for the F 35 joint strike fighter. They got the plans for the uh, Patriot pack three missile system. They got the system for shooting down ballistic missiles, which is called the terminal high altitude area defense. And they got the plans for the Navy's uh, new uh, ship called the literal combat ship. That's not, Literal as in they literally stole the plans, but as in L-I-T-T-O-R-A-L, uh, and it's a, a small surface uh, vessel. Um, so has uh, the American defense establishment become radically comically worse at protecting its secrets in the digital age, or is it just the fact that more information comes out so that when these uh, shocking intelligence defeats occur... Uh, it gets into the news. Well, I mean, we were pretty hilariously bad at protecting technical secrets from being stolen from, by the Soviets. It's just that the Soviets didn't have the capacity to sit back in Beijing and steal them remotely. They had to send a guy on site. You know, the the ability to put all of that data in one place where it can be stolen, like one packet of Bruce Partington plans is new. So the scale of potential losses is greater. Um, I, I mean, this is not to say that the defense establishment is not perhaps also gotten comically worse and has perhaps neglected both the cybersecurity threat and the specifically Chinese cybersecurity threat. Um, uh, although as we've seen, they've neglected cybersecurity threats from all manner of nations. Yes. Uh, <laughs> they just the, don't know uh, which the, uh, threat to, to neglect first. Right. Yeah. It, it's just, it, it, it's spoiled for choice, really. The interesting sort of side note of this particular theft is that because they took this, uh, specific, uh, weapons test system information that was designed to fight Chinese 
radars, they know what we know about their radars, which means they've also second order probably very badly hampered the NSA in its attempt to gather that information because now it knows what is what's open. And uh, the Chinese government is certainly capable of looking at every single door and seeing if it's open and closing it. I mean, that's that's a straight up manpower job. That's what they're very, very good at. So, so it, it's not just owning the information because this information itself was built on classified data that we uh, spied on the Chinese, broadly speaking, to get or snatched out of the atmosphere above China, and they were helpless to prevent us. But they now have all of that information that we have, which creates its own level of threat that the NSA has to sort of overcome while the military hopefully gets its act together. Right. And we know that, in a sense, the U.S. is kind of doing open-source weapons design work. (laughs) Yeah. Because now the... uh, Chinese drones apparently are uh, based on stolen American schematics, uh, so they'll be able to uh, perhaps whip up some of these uh, these weapons as well. Um, how do we then, uh, uh, since this is such a classic story, but you know it's like you know the, the thirty nine, it's like John Buchan, except you know the spies aren't you know they're maybe sitting at home in Beijing with a nice coffee. Uh, perhaps a bubble tea uh, while they do this. Um, how do we turn this into a uh, a scenario in the age where the suspenseful scene where you see the download meter go to 100 is, <laughs> might be the only thing that's really going on in it? How, how do we Narrator, turn this into- this scene is never suspenseful. <laughs> yes, exactly. Um, I, I also want to point out that the other thing that they've been able to do, and this is also very classic spy, is every now and again, I mean, because DARPA only funds so many projects that there's a guy at Duke University who developed a gigapixel camera for long range detection of, of uh, people's faces and uh, DARPA already had one basically. So when this guy came from Duke University to say, Hey DARPA, I'm building this awesome, uh, super camera for spying. And DARPA was like, Oh, we, we already got one. Sorry, man. You're the second guy in line. So he moved to China to get funding for his company to build these cameras and, Oh, guess what? Now China, of course, is using them, uh, to spy on their own, uh, their own folks. So the, yes. you know, the, 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 the inventor who literally says, well, if the British government isn't interested in my, uh, in my radium mine, I shall take the plans to Franco Prussia. And, uh, that guy, he's a real person now. And he's an <laughs> idiot at Duke University who thinks he can go to China with his gigapixel camera and, uh, not get caught in the backblast. So yeah, the whole, the whole thing's going on. The, I think you have to sort of, to turn it into an interesting narrative, you have to make it sort of about personalities. First of all, you have to amp up the security because like you say, it was an unclassified network. So yeah. they didn't even need to suborn the guy at the contractor by um, uh, whining and dining him at um, uh, uh, fashionable Hong Kong strip clubs, the way that they were suborning the entire, you know, seventh fleet. Um, they, they, they didn't even find that guy. So to make it a convincing narrative, first you have to put the information into a classified server and then have the Chinese agents on the ground working on the guys who have, access to it uh like much like um you know getting the um uh, key swipe or the fingerprint from the guy in a heist movie uh right i suppose this is also how you could get gundams right because yeah uh, you could have <laughs> well if they're going to steal all of our technology let's have a let's make a bunch of stupid dummy technology things that can't possibly work and put <laughs> them on the servers and so they'll download them and try to build them and that will waste all of their time and energy uh, but of course something weird happens uh, you know, there's a surrealistic reality slip, and somehow it turns out that the 22-year-old kid who you hire to make the fake Gundam plans actually has a, a psychic channel to another dimension and winds up accidentally uh, providing actual uh, plans for, for uh, mechs and robo-suits and all those other things, uh, which, of course, the Chinese then start building, and then you have to find the the, the kid who knew how to build all these things without knowing that he knew how to build them because, of course, he, you know, he spent his whole life watching anime and stuff. And, uh, he's gone missing and you have to find him, uh, before, uh, you know, the, uh, uh, Chinese Gundams succeed in taking over the world because you've got to, uh, you know, it's probably too late to build some of your own, but at least you need to use his know-how, uh, in order to get to the Chinese, uh, factory and take over some of the Gundams and, and, uh, 
reverse triple axle list so that you can uh, make your own. Well, you start by having, you know, your your two sets of player characters. You have your sort of um, uh, uh, special operations command guys who are in the sort of desperately upgunned construction equipment that we're sending to fight the Gundams because no one ever <laughs> flies a mile off and shoots them with missiles until they fall down because that would be sensible. Um, so you've got your, your SOCOM guys who are doing that and your other bunch of characters who are your spies trying to find the missing a 22 year old genius who you know uh, had a fight with her mom and now she's gone it might not even be the chinese it might be that she's off you know in some other entire uh you know subculture that you have to infiltrate so that you're racing the chinese snatch team to her as opposed to her having been you know kidnapped into you know um uh, special gundam uh, uh lao guy number nine in the gansu desert or something um she's actually still running around and you have to find her when you do find her it turns out that she has this egg that she's been carrying and it started out you know just the egg uh, that uh, her little sister was supposed to, you know, take to school and not have crushed in that classic, uh, right. you know, social it's studies her, it's experiment. Her, it's her pregnancy egg. Yes, but the egg has been growing, and it's got sort of a leathery hide on it, uh, because guess what? Gundams aren't the only thing that uh, our uh, young uh, heroine is psychically channeling from the anime uh, dimension. And so you get there, and it's like, oh, what do we do with the egg? Do, do, do we hope that it's... That it's Gambra, a, a friend, <laughs> a friend to children, to children and possibly to the, you know, Western uh, defense establishment. Yes, um, exactly. <laughs> yes. Is, is this, is this early Godzilla or late Godzilla? Let's, exactly. We have to be very careful. Or maybe it'll be Pokemon. Maybe we'll be lucky. It'll be Pikachu. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> Who can say? Well, uh, now that we've uh, revealed the secret Pikachu behind this story, I think uh, there's nothing more we have to say about it, and we can That's move the on. end of every classic spy narrative, just like in E. Phillips Oppenheim, when it turns out that um, they did indeed have to catch them all on the Zeppelin. That's the same story. when demons lodge in your memories. Well, there are seven different sorts of demons, each of which has a different mnemonic effect. That sounds fabulous. Where can I learn more? In Volume 2 of The Best of Phoenix, now available in PDF at DriveThruRPG. That must mean that all three volumes of The Best of Phoenix are available separately or in a value-conscious omnibus edition. When you're typing it into the search engine, you're typing F-E-N-I-X. And what you get when you type that is the best of Sweden's much-vaunted magazine devoted to role-playing and gamer-friendly reviews. Including a metric oodle of articles by yours truly. They use the metric oodle in Sweden, right? Indeed they do, Ken. And in Sweden, by law, a metric oodle must contain such features as... Fallen Gods. Runepunk Steam Quests. Lamb Chop Love Songs. And the comic strip adventures of lazy beer-loving Bernard the Barbarian. All brought to you by the expert editorial hands of Tova and Anders Gilbring. Not by Logically related, but related by their love of role-playing. That's the Best of Phoenix Volumes 1 to 3. The first of many gaming wonders to come from Askfageln. Ask for Askfageln by name. And don't forget, that's F-E-N-I-X. And remember, that's in English, not in Swedish. In English, not Swedish. Be a heroic protagonist, just like Patreon backers... David Muscari. John Rogers. Ross Ireland. Brendan Clowerty. And Brian Malcolm. A series of calls and responses, petitions and grantings, asks and answers, crises and settlements. We find ourselves up a tree. We find ourselves rescuing a cat. We move forward in three or four or five steps. We must be somehow, somewhere inside the narrative hut already, as indeed we might suppose we already all were, especially if we are uh, Nabokov. But we're not Nabokov. It's Ken and Robin. And Robin, uh, as the expert on our narrative hut, let us pose to you the first question, which is literally the first question. Who's the protagonist? And by that, I mean, who's the protagonist? Right. So, like many writing terms, uh, particularly ones that are sometimes used by academics and sometimes used by uh, practitioners in the realm of fiction, uh, it has acquired several meanings over the years. And I thought we would uh, look at 
which of those meanings is the most useful to those of us who wish to create narratives. So, for example, uh, some people would tell you that the protagonist is the character who puts the events of a storyline into action, who causes the story to happen. Other people would argue that it is the obvious main viewpoint character, the one that you most identify with. Um, and of course, uh, not all stories necessarily have a clear protagonist, or sometimes there are stories where the clarity of who is the protagonist is uh, not as relevant. However, even in an ensemble piece, uh, where you follow multiple characters and you possibly cut between them, maybe they all come together at the end after not knowing each other at the beginning. Often that's, you know, a series of parallel threads, each of which has a protagonist, and then all of the protagonists uh, come together at the end, or sometimes don't. Maybe they just all drift along, continuing on in parallel. So why do we want to know uh, why a character is a protagonist? Why is it useful? Does a story need a protagonist? Um, this sort of comes out of something one of our uh, beloved commenters said uh, in response to my uh, comment about Avengers Infinity War, which is that in addition to it not being a movie, it doesn't have a protagonist. And the counter-argument to that, uh, without spending 15 minutes talking about Infinity War, is that Thanos is, in fact, the protagonist. And so that follows uh, definition A, which is that, yes, Thanos is definitely the character who puts events in motion and who acts consistently to make things happen through the course of the narrative. Obviously, by the way that I've set this up, I lean toward the second useful definition in that the protagonist is the figure who we most care about because, in fact... By that definition, the antagonist of virtually any procedural narrative that has a, a single bad guy or a, a bad guy who's sort of the main force is that antagonist and protagonist then mean the same thing. Because it is very often the case, especially with iconic heroes, that the iconic hero reacts to disorder that is created in the world and then acts to restore order at the end uh, using their iconic ethos, whatever that might be. And so Avengers Infinity War, there's a whole bunch of different characters trying and then failing, uh, spoilers, uh, <laughs> to use their iconic ethos to address the uh, disorder that Thanos has has created. But it seems to me that that is a, at least in the sorts of narratives that we create, a not-so-useful way of uh, looking at it. It's sort of interesting in a kind of academic way, because sometimes it will turn out by that measure, the protagonist of the story is someone who briefly appears, sets a series of events in motion, but then disappears again and isn't actually all that important. Um, and particularly in something uh, that has sort of a, a high chaos factor in the na narrative, like, uh, for example, a horror story or anything by the Coen brothers, uh, you know, who the protagonist is by that a measure can be a weird, obscure answer. And that's sort of a, a fun thing to be able to say to me. You know, it's like, did you know that Michael Myers is the protagonist of Halloween? Uh, but it isn't something that I think helps us make narratives. Um, and I'll explain that in a moment. But I've talked for a while. So uh, where, where are you coming down in this, uh, Ken? Uh, normally, I would be a pedant. And I would say the protagonist, as you say, is the sort of a uh, character who initiates the conflict, conflict being the core of story, the character who starts the conflict is uh, the protagonist. And as you hint, in most uh, iconic hero narratives, in most procedural narratives, that means the protagonist is the villain. And in most dramatic narratives, or whatever you want to call them, the other kind, the protagonist is the hero because they are trying to address a problem either in inside themselves or in the world and they bring something about to change it and that causes all the problems for them uh, as they go forward. So the notion of the protagonist being on different sides depending on which story you're telling is kind of an interesting one structurally, but in terms of using it in everyday language, I think I kind of have to go with you that the protagonist is quote unquote the main character and in my defense I will go back to the ancient Greeks because protagonist actually means the first actor. It's the guy who begins the story, the person who is not the chorus, 
whose voice you hear first. And in Greek uh, classical construction, that was always the hero because there used to only be a hero in a chorus. So that's how you knew what was going on. So if I can outpedant the pedants, I would say the protagonist is not necessarily the initiator of the conflict, but is the first actor, the first character that you encounter and identify with. And that is nine times out of 10 going to be both the hero and the protagonist in drama. And um, as you say, it's going to be the hero in an iconic story. Every now and again, you get a story where the, who are the protagonist is shifts halfway through because the protagonist dies and maybe their son or their wife or their um, uh, partner takes up the mantle um, in, for example, in to live and die in LA. Uh, one character dies halfway through and his partner uh, is revealed to be just as awful as his uh, other partner was. And he sort of takes up the mantle. Uh, you can have, you know, your um, uh, uh, Batman and Robin, uh, plenty of stories there where Batman is retiring and he passes on the mantle to Robin. And so Robin would be the protagonist for the second half of that graphic novel, whatever it happens to be. Um, I think that uh, saying protagonist means first actor in the Greek sense is a perfectly w- a good way to both uh, unify uh, pedantry and practice. Right. Now, of course, uh, what it means to be the first actor then becomes a question. So uh, in a lot of Shakespeare, for example, you do not meet the protagonist right away. In fact, even in a lot of uh, 30s and 40s uh, uh, films, you don't meet the protagonist right away. But you hear uh, ripples and rumors of the protagonist. So, uh, you know, in Hamlet, is Hamlet's ghost the protagonist of the film? Because he sets the events in motion and you he's the most... A riveting character in that first scene that's uh, making things happen, or in fact, as we all know intuitively, at the end they go, well, "We better tell Hamlet about this." That then we know, oh no, ha- Hamlet is the protagonist. And then when you see him deep in gloom at the top of the next scene, you go, oh, "Okay, here we go." And so the the reason that I would argue for practitioners of fiction that the more quotidian answer of it's the character you mostly identify with and is on stage most of the time uh, works is because uh, the way that narratives become engaging is by thing I always say, engaging our hopes and our fears. So uh, in order to care about a narrative, we have to have something that we uh, want to happen in a scene and something that we want to not have happen in the scene. And the way that you do this is you have at least one character you identify with. And so uh, once uh, the whole situation with the ghost is is set up and resolved, and then Horatio says, hey, you know, there's this ghost, and he's, uh, he's looking for you, uh, then you go, well, I hope Hamlet sorts this out. And then Hamlet goes and talks to the ghost, and you find out what the, the ghost gives Hamlet his mission. And then from then on, you, you hope that uh, Hamlet achieves his mission of uh, establishing uh, for a fact that the ghost isn't leading him astray and then takes the necessary action against uh, Claudius. And without uh, someone whose uh, desires you care about in a narrative, it is much more difficult, if not impossible, to engage the audience with that uh, emotional uh, rhythm. So, of course, uh, as we've already suggested, you can have multiple protagonists as you move back and forth between different people you care about. In any ensemble show, you see that happening. And uh, you then begin to look at, uh, you know, who is the focus character in any uh, given scene. So um, in some narratives, in Dr. No, for example, uh, Bond is the protagonist uh, for almost the entire piece. Uh, but there's one scene where suddenly you start to identify uh, with uh, one of the minor members of Dr. No's conspiracy in order to identify why Dr. No is scary. And you often see that in films where you will be encouraged to feel a sense of alarm or dismay around the main villain because you briefly begin to identify with the secondary villain. So even there, there's no simple one-size-fits-all answer to the question of who is the uh, protagonist. You might say, who's the main protagonist of the story? And so that would, you know, enable you to, uh, you know, acknowledge that Bond is the protagonist while also uh, saying, oh, and here's this weird little scene here where Bond is Stop, temporarily stops being the identification figure. But by and large, in order to know what your audience is likely to be thinking about the story that you're telling, uh, which is a concern of almost anyone who creates a narrative, uh, you uh, need to know who they're identifying with and what expectations that identification brings in relation to the uh, narrative. And so that if you have uh, a bunch of characters who uh, you don't particularly care about or aren't really doing anything, uh, that is where 
you might have someone who's your protagonist on paper, but if you don't have someone who's the identification figure, the viewpoint character in emotional practice, uh, then your story has gone sideways. And it's important, I think, to sort of keep the old pedant discussion in mind, because if you thought your main character was being really active and really uh, driving the story, and you look at it analytically and you say, oh, look at that. All my main characters are feeble and reactive, and the only character with agency and power, narratively, is the villain. Then, if you meant to do that, great, but if you didn't meant to do that, that can be a sort of a signal to you that you've deprotagonized your protagonist by accident and made them uh, simply the, uh, the the recipient of the buffeting of the world as opposed to someone who steps out into it, as does even such a famously vacillating character as Hamlet. Y- yes, he's always doing something. Uh, mm-hmm. Sometimes that something is, is at odds with the thing he did before. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, you know, once he is given his mission, he is uh, pretty active. And yeah. uh, just as we think of uh, Kirk as uh, routinely violating the prime directive and being a, a reckless cowboy... That's actually uh, more of the joke impression of, of Kirk uh, than it is in the original series. And, and uh, likewise, if you look at Hamlet, he, is, uh, he describes himself as vacillating, uh, but in fact, uh, he's describing himself unfairly. And uh, he's actually a pretty active uh, protagonist. Uh, whereas uh, Lear, for example, he causes a mess, he instigates things. Uh, but uh, then he goes off and, uh, you know, uh, it's really uh, Cordelia who becomes more of a, the protagonist as uh, as Lear uh, sets everything spinning into uh, into disarray. So I think at this point, uh, it's time for us to be the protagonist of our podcast and uh, very actively uh, deal with the fact that it's time for us to leave this segment and uh, head on in to uh, achieve our final goals in whatever segment lies on the other side. Born of the U.S. government's 1928 raid on the degenerate coastal town of Innsmouth, Massachusetts, the covert agency known as Delta Green opposes the forces of darkness with honor but without glory. Delta Green agents fight to save humanity from unnatural horrors, often at a shattering personal cost. In Delta Green, the role-playing game, you play those agents. Fight to save human lives and sanity from threats beyond space and time. The long-whispered-of slipcase set has now shipped. This stunning edition includes two full-color rulebooks. The Any Award-winning Agent's Handbook features rules for creating agents and playing the game. Gear! Combat! Dossiers! The Handler's Guide for the game moderator who presents the mysteries and horrors of the Cthulhu Mythos. Terrible Secrets of the Intelligence World and of eons pre-human. Percentile-based rules compatible with 20 years' worth of Delta Green scenarios and source books. A universe of cosmic terror lurks. Just out of sight. Can your agents stand against it? The whirring of time gears and the clacking of chronoton styles that were once more standing in proximity to Ken's time machine. This, of course, is the conveyance that Time Incorporated uses to hurtle Ken back into history to bend, fold, spindle, and sometimes, yes, even mutilate it. And this time, at the behest of Patreon backer Andrew Riggs, uh, we are going to ask the question, how would the timeline change if you were able to uh, keep the uh, Soviets, or I guess rather the uh, Soviet-backed Polish regime, from executing Polish resistance fighter Witold Pilecki, or I guess Witold Pilecki, in 1948? We have to tell the story of this extraordinary person, I guess, before we uh, work out uh, how you're going to rescue him, at what point you're going to intervene, and then what the effects of that are going to be. So it's a really amazing story. So uh, Witold Pilecki first fought in the Polish-Soviet War of 1919 to 1921. 
I'm going to pretend I knew there was that war <laughs> before I did my research. That's that's a very classic war, Robin. That's where Trotsky realized he was not going to get his dream of revolution in all countries simultaneously and had to uh, sort of go back to first principles and then go back to Mexico to get killed. A m- military historian, I do not claim to be, or a, an expert on the history of Poland, I do not claim to be. Right. The, the next invasion of uh, Poland came from the other direction uh, during World War II. And then from the same direction again, we all forget, or not all. All, many forget that the Soviet Union invaded Poland right after Hitler did to get their third of Poland. Right. So at any rate, Pilecki, uh, his efforts during wartime were mostly directed uh, towards uh, the Germans, and uh, he founded the uh, uh, a resistance group called the Secret Polish Army, and then he belonged to uh, the Consolidated uh, Home Army. And in 1940, as part of an operation planned with this group, he did... Uh, something extraordinary, and why don't you tell us about that? Uh, in 1940, the Germans had established a concentration camp at uh, Auschwitz, Auschwitzim in Polish, but I'm not going to say that over and over and over again, um, Auschwitz, and they didn't know what was going on, the Polish government, and they, it's where a lot of Polish resistance fighters were uh, being held at that time. This is before the final solution is being implemented. Um, he goes out and says, I'll volunteer to be picked up in a sweep and taken into the concentration camp to find out what's going on. And he goes in and uh, discovers this is a really, really bad concentration camp even then and begins to, he's training the inmates, those who are capable of resistance. He's training them to create a in-camp resistance. He establishes communications back with the home army and he then basically continues to building a, he builds a secret radio station fundamentally inside Auschwitz and broadcasts it until um, uh, one of his comrades, I guess, starts talking a little too freely, and so they have to stop using the radio station. And uh, Pilecki, at this time, is hoping that either the Home Army mounts an attack on Auschwitz to raise resistance from within, or the Allies would just drop a bunch of weapons into the camp, and uh, then he could take care of that uh, from there. Everyone outside the camp says, that's probably not going to work. And uh, finally, Pilecki's like, look, I can't I can't have this conversation by the radio. I'm going to bust back out of Auschwitz and come explain how bad Auschwitz is and how important it is to take this out. And this, and by this time, the, the, he's escaping in April 1943, so Auschwitz is beginning to be turned into a death camp right around that same period. Uh, they've already killed about one and a half million people, according to his own report, uh, in the, in the first wave of, of gassings in Auschwitz, uh, by the time he gets out. So he's very much saying not only Perhaps my plan was tactically unsound at the time, but now it's just a humanitarian measure. We have to stop this atrocity. And when he gets out, the home army is like, we don't have the men to stop this atrocity. We can't do it. So that was basically where it stood. Right. It's not that they're indifferent. It's that it's extraordinarily difficult. It's super hard. Yeah. (laughs) Especially if you are already trying to maintain a clandestine army and you have maybe 20 anti-tank rifles and a few uh, dozen machine guns. It's the, the home army was fairly well armed for a anti-Nazi resistance movement, but it was not well armed enough to move against basically what would have been a, you know, a few reinforced companies or a, or understrength battalion of SS that simply wasn't going to happen. Right. And for the allies to do anything, they have to win and take over the area. Yes. Right. Well, the Allies could easily have dropped uh, weapons into the camp, or they could easily have bombed the rail lines leading into Auschwitz. They had lots of things they could do and absolutely did not do. Let us not let the Allies off the hook here. Good. Okay. Glad you said that. Um, so, uh, in '44, he takes uh, part in the Warsaw Uprising, uh, which is very famous and famously, uh, of course, does not uh, succeed. And he's <laughs> captured in October of '44. So he's captured and he's taken to Bavaria, is that correct? Mm-hmm. Okay, and so uh, when the Allies arrive in Bavaria, they free him and he uh, goes to uh, London. And then uh, at the end of 45, he returns to Poland because uh, guess who's in charge of Poland now? Yes, the good old Russians. God bless right. them. And so uh, he's uh, barely finished with one resistance and he has to take up another one. And so uh, he starts uh, doing what he does and setting up a, an intelligence network. And uh, he manages to... Uh, they turn a high-level official of the secret police, but unfortunately, they also have a mole in their organization. So in 47, uh, he's arrested 
and in 48, uh, he is tried and executed. And this, or at some point, is where your time machine comes in. So I guess the uh, our first question, now that we've covered all the background, is where uh, do you intervene in the time stream in order to uh, save him? Well, I mean, saving him is relatively simple in that it merely involves, you know, saying, hey, this guy's a mole, um, get out, uh, all is fly at once, all is known. He would have had the resources to get into, at that time, not as uh, seriously uh, Soviet-occupied Czechoslovakia, or he could have gotten to any number of other places uh, if he'd just been warned ahead of time. But he, of course, would have gone right back in and gotten executed in the next crackdown, which happened in the 50s. Uh, so unless I'm kidnapping him and taking him to the, you know, taking him to the 1990s and letting him live in free Poland, uh, I'm not exactly sure what the higher authority, uh, Time Incorporated, wants me to do. Well, if you if you save him the first time, is there a, is there a change in the timeline? Uh, sadly, no. I mean, we we know now because it is slowly dribbling out, and in the post um, uh, uh, Soviet era, that there were active military, in many cases, armed resistance to Soviet occupation, lasting down in the fifties and sixties in some of Eastern Europe, and that uh, Kim Philby, among the many gifts he gave uh, the West, was not just the betrayal of as many of those agencies as managed to make contact with the British, but also creating the very powerful uh, disinformation that uh, there there was no operating uh, opposition to Soviet control in Eastern Europe. And it was just give it up. It's a bad, it's a bad job. Now that said, those resistance forces, again, just like the Polish home army in uh, Nazi-occupied Poland, could not have won, could not have changed conditions on the ground absent an, uh, an allied or an American intervention, which absolutely was not happening, not even in 1956, uh, when uh, Hungary actually overthrew the Soviets for uh, most of uh, a spring and then got itself uh, annihilated because they picked literally the worst week they could have done it. So... Even if he continues as an independent anti-Soviet operator, even Witold Pilecki is not going to free Poland by his own efforts or by the efforts of his anti-Soviet resistance force. And that's just the, the, the sad mathematics of history that we see happen every now and again, even in this very segment. So basically, you have to rescue him from the time stream. And uh, I mean, he's not even going to agree to go off and be a time incorporated agent, right? He's going to keep throwing. No, he's not. He, unless, unless he gets to, you know, recruit another, you know, several thousand time incorporated agents and go and mount a temporarily backed coup d'etat against Soviet occupied Poland, which again would last about a week, just like every other independent government in Eastern Europe lasted as long as the Soviets would drive in with the tanks and put them down. It, it simply uh, was not practical. I think maybe, the possibility that you could have had is uh, if you are trying sort of a bank shot and the only goal is to keep this guy alive because he's such a great guy that he deserves better than a death. And again, he might not have agreed. He might have said, nope, I, I got caught. I got executed. I'm a martyr to Poland. And that's a more valuable service than anything I could do working and living in London. But maybe if I blow the gaff on, say, uh, Guy Burgess, in 1947, which you've been itching to do. Oh, I've been so itching to do it. And so MI5 uh, snaffles him up and maybe we work out a trade of Guy Burgess for, um, uh, which old Pilecki and Pilecki, you know, has to live in England and stay a, a ferociously anti-communist, uh, voice. And, uh, maybe he sort of breaks some of those, um, uh, disinformation efforts that Philby and, and the Soviets put together. But, once more, there was no shortage of people in very high places in power in the West who knew exactly what kind of a totalitarian hell Poland was and who could or chose to do nothing really about it until 1981 when the CIA finally begins backing solidarity, uh, basically as a result of an appeal from the Vatican. Maybe you could get him writing spy novels. I could get him writing spy novels. And again, he may be uh, he born in 1901. He certainly could have lived long enough to insist on being inserted 
back into Poland to meet Lech Valenza in the early 80s. Maybe that's how he gets finally arrested. And he still gets to be a martyr. He just gets to be a martyr at an old age instead of uh, uh, having his life cut off practically in his prime. Well, uh, since that's a fairly small uh, change to the time stream and, you know, probably doesn't lead to uh, Zeppelins. No. Uh, maybe you should go and do that. <laughs> and then uh, next week we'll, we'll reconvene and, and we'll have completely forgotten that we changed the time stream. And uh, we'll have a whole other... That's how it works. Yeah, a whole other series of... of segments and uh, no one will even know that history changed unless they listen to this thing that they're right. currently listening to right at this current moment or they're or they're guy burgess when they wonder how it all went so horribly wrong stuff having once again been talked about it's time to thank our sponsors atlas games pelgrane press ask the gown arc dream dark tower and pro fantasy software music as always is by james simple audio editing by rob borges get your priority question asking access by supporting our patreon at patreon.com backslash ken and robin get priority access to the very best cyber security alongside such patreon backers as graham wills jack ulick Jacob Ansari, Jeremy Forbing, and Andrew Cowie. Snag Ken Robin Apparel and other erudite merchandise at tpublic.com slash user slash Ken Robin. Now available, Time Incorporated, changing history since Aristotle was a triceratops. On Twitter, he's at Kenneth Height. And he's at Robin D. Laws. See you next time, and once again, we will talk about stuff. <laughs>